Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 166 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center, University of Texas. Wednesday night, it's May 13th. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek and Bobby, it's been a while. Yeah, uh, where were we last week? What happened? We couldn't have have gone anywhere. I haven't gone anywhere. Um, I guess we just just were too tired. Finals, finals. We We got two more days of exams. That's true. I wrote, a, I wrote a pretty fun exam. It's being administered in two days. Uh, I say fun. That may not be how it's experienced by everyone, but you know. I wrote, you know, I wrote, I, so my, my federal courts exam is a floating exam. And so I can't say much about it, especially because I understand that um, a majority of my students have, have uh, left it for last. Um, but I'll, I'll just say it's, um, there certainly were a lot of candidates for ripped from the headlines, you know, questions about the federal courts. <laughs> Well, yeah, we, uh, so mine was con law. So uh, yeah, I, I, had, I had inspiration. A growth industry, you might say. <laughs> or, or is it shrinking? I don't know. Uh, today's oral argument, there, there are all these really funny clips about today's um, Supreme Court arguments in the faithless electric cases where Alito's like, I understand that there's no like original support for this, but and I understand that we don't usually care about consequences, but let's talk about the consequences. I'm like, wait, what? No. Our argument in the alternative. Wait, so he, so he said, did he say like we don't normally do it or did he say like we shouldn't interpret in light of consequences? I, I haven't seen the transcript, so it's, it was one or the other. But just That's but, awesome. but but right after saying something about how we either shouldn't or we don't usually care about consequences, he said, but let's talk about the consequences. <laughs> but we're here, we gotta do something. You know, um, everyone's listening. In my um, in my class, uh, in my conduct class, we spend a lot of time emphasizing the various modalities or mm-hmm. methods of interpretation or schools, whatever one wants to call them. Um, and so Hearing a direct discussion and express discussion of should we consider consequences? Uh, hopefully, my students would resonate to that. And the prudential, the, the prudential questions that raises. Um, <laughs> there you go. So listen, um, um, you know, it's been a very quiet two weeks in national security land. Not much. There's hardly happened. anything happening. Pshaw. Um, uh, yeah, Tr- Trumplandia is a cornucopia of I mean, issues for us. Let's, let's, let's just put it this way. The President of the United States vetoed a bill that was attempting to rein in his war powers, perhaps one of the first bills to actually get to the President's desk to do so, Bobby, in a very long time. Yep. I don't think we're going to have time to talk about it today. Yeah, that's, that's way down our list. I think we'll just, I think that was it. I think we did just talk about it. Well, um, we should talk about the fact that the vote, that the vote to override failed in the Senate. It, yes. So we've got uh, shockingly. I, I'm yeah, no surprise there. Which is partly why we're I guess we're not really dwelling on it. It's sort of uh, like the stock market; they've already factored in certain uh, consequences. I see you were enjoying in Austin. Uh, hold that back up there so I can see what you got for the listeners. Uh, Steve's enjoying in Austin East Siders pineapple cider, and uh, the slogan at the bottom I think says, "How do you like them apples?" That nice. is indeed the, that is indeed the slogan. All right, and uh, here I don't know if this is married for you now. We got it. A little Austin higher, a little higher. Works. Austin, yeah, I see Austin Beer Works Fire Eagle, American IPA. Yeah, yeah, my favorite. This is the best. So, All right, so we're representing our Austin uh, craft uh, True story. breweries. And uh, oh, let's see, is, is this cidery considered a brewery? Do you brew cider? Or do you ferment I believe, it? I believe you brew. Is it a fermentary? I, I, you know, I, this is, this is a, a, a question I should know the answer to, and I'm embarrassed to say that I'm, I'm pretty sure there's, there actually is, in fact, a, a brewery or a cidery, as they call it, uh, in East Austin. I've never been, been there because I brought you a gift from there one time. You and did. I went in there, and it was a super cool place. Um, um, Bob, Bobby, for my birthday, what, two years ago, got me a – or no, for my 40th birthday, right? Got me a, yep. a, an East Cider sweatshirt. And speaking of birthdays, I would be remiss if I didn't note that this Sunday was Karen's birthday. 
Happy birthday, Karen. Happy birthday, wait, Karen. So, wait, double birthday, double. Mother's Day combat. Birthday and Mother's Day. I, I was just, I That's was. That's actually I, kind of a ripoff for her, I would argue. Oh, she, I, oh, I think, I, I think the opposite. I think I was totally screwed. There's just literally nothing you can do to provide a satisfactory experience on both birthday and Mother's Day. Did you, did you cook anything? Did you pick everything special? So we made breakfast in bed. Um, right. I feel uh, like making it in bed is a risky proposition, but hey, you know. That seemed to go okay. Um, we did our best to give Karen some some downtime, some chill time, um, right. and and Karen showing just just what kind of person she is. Um, we had a, an hour or two in the afternoon. We actually had alone adult time because we had um, one of the girls' babysitters was actually available to come to go watch him for a bit. So Karen decided to spend our free time going to Home Depot, um, you know, properly masked, yep. so we could buy some plants for our backyard. Nice. Um, I had visited uh, the the pick the curbside pickup at Shoal Creek Nursery, mm-hmm. and th- I asked him how's business. And they're like, we've you know we've never been busier because everybody's like, I need stuff to do in my backyard. So it's I mean so so things that are right um, Home Depot the garden section was crazy busy. Um, every store I've ever I've been to is out of weights right for people who want to work oh, out yeah. at home right. Yeah. Apparently there's like a two month backlog for people who want to order a Peloton bike. We we snuck yeah. that one. Regular in bikes. I've heard that getting bike repair is, yep. is very difficult right now. Yep. Yeah. So people are people are people with money are bored. Yeah. You know I I'm as you know because I you've run into me in the neighborhood on my bike. I've been riding every day, um, and it's about the same time every day. And I have a pretty good read on the uh, level of activity just based on traffic. It's way it's, up. It's way up. Especially it's way up. today, it was way up. Karen, Karen and I have been talking about, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm the one person in the house who goes to stores. Um, and, you know, so I do like our grocery shopping and, and other things that we need. And the traffic has noticeably increased in the last five, six days. Yep. Um, which, you know, given the um, efforts by the governor and the attorney general of our fair state is not entirely surprising, even oh, if it's not necessarily... Surprised. Um, what I would have done. It's, it's, uh, it's no surprise. I, as annoying as traffic is to some extent, I mean, to me, it just entirely depends on what's the behavior of people when they get out of those cars at public places. Um, but that traffic to me signifies possible jobs being recovered or saved and kind of happy to see it. Um, well, but it depends on how people are behaving. That's the thing. Point. I mean, you know, the, the story is about people like, you know, defying mass requests, you know, getting into fights with security guards no, who exactly. enforce no, it. I mean, nuts. Nuts. Um, so I, I just, I, I, I don't want to, we have plenty to talk about, and this is not one of the things we're going to talk about, but I just want to say one point, which is for all the people equating being forced to wear a mask to enter a private business with a, you know, foundational assault on their constitutional civil liberties. All I have to say is then why are you wearing a shirt? And why are you wearing a shirt? <laughs> right. Are I mean, you saying that no shirt, no shoes, no service principle is is unconstitutional <laughs> no to the contrary what i'm saying is if you're okay with no shirt no shoes no service then shut the you know what up about masks you just you just pioneered a fine t-shirt my friend no shirt no shoes no service is unconstitutional what uh, on, on one side no shirt no shoes no service on the, on the other side is unconstitutional it's totally unconstitutional. <laughs> violates my freaking rights it's like no, that what was the um well, um, during the, the debate over the affordable, no, no, this was much earlier in the nineties during the, like the big, like Hillary care debate. There's a famous sign that a protester has at one of these rallies it says, keep the government out of my Medicare. Yeah. <laughs> it's like this is what we're dealing uh, with. Agents provocateur, no doubt. All, All right. right. So on the roster of topics yes, for today, sorry. Um, no, no, it was great. I, I love, uh, catching up like that. This is what so happens we, when uh, we don't see each other for two weeks. Well, exactly. 
We've got some Trumplandia topics. We're going to start the Supreme Court. Highest court in the land has heard oral argument and fascinating oral arguments in a trio of cases. Long oral arguments. Yeah, it's a lot of oral argument. Um, you've got the uh, subpoena cases directed to uh, Mazars and the Deutsche Bank for Trump business records, especially the tax filings and other business records. Um, and the way to think of it, folks, is you basically have two clusters of cases. You've got the Congressional House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence investigation, which resulted in a subpoena to these private entities. Plus and House it, Oversight, it, plus House Financial Services. Oh, right, right. It's multiple committees. But but HIPSI. Which, 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 but that's going to matter. I mean, I, I want to I flag that here because I actually think that's going to be a big deal. It could. It could. Um, and then separately, you've got the, uh, the, the uh, DA in Manhattan, Cyrus Vance Jr. Is it Jr.? Yeah. I mean, it's not, obviously not the Cyrus Vance, but I didn't know <laughs> technically Cyrus Vance Jr. So Cyrus Vance is uh, presiding in the context of a grand jury uh, request for similar documents. And so you've got uh, sort of a, a state criminal proceeding request and you have a congressional invest oversight investigation request. So we'll, t we'll review the oral argument. We'll prognosticate uh, and then we'll pivot to who else but Mike Flynn. He's back on the show. Hey, Mike Flynn, welcome back. Long time guest. Um, DOJ is long, trying long, to drop long, long time subject, first time caller. Yeah, well, let's hope, I hope he doesn't call. Actually, that'd be great if he called, but since Dude, we're not as, this as we've, discuss, as we've discussed, he, he, blocked, he blocked me on Twitter. Doesn't mean he won't call you. Maybe okay. he'll call me. Uh, but either way, uh, DOJ called and they want. <laughs> Sorry, that just seemed like a great segue. DOJ called. They want uh, they want to drop the case. Um, Judge Sullivan is not so sure. And and then the question is, well, what does the honorable uh, uh, Judge Gleason think about that? So we'll 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 unpack the uh, context there. And did, then of did, course, did, by the way, did you see the troll who came for me on Twitter about about Rule Forty Eight? One, the trolls all come for you on Twitter because yeah, you, you like to play with them. Um, it's how I take out my frustration. Yeah, fair enough. What did, what did this particular one? Um, that I was misreading. So I, we'll say, I mean, basically, okay, I, was, I, was, I, was, I was misreading Rule 48 because I said that, you know, um, it's not automatic that the government has to get leave of court to dismiss an indictment. And he was focused on the word, the government may, comma, with leave of court and said, the government may, doesn't have to. I was like, no, no, bro. But uh, semantics, semantics. He went about 25 layers in, including sending me an email this morning um, telling me that he was going to make sure my employers knew that I was a liar, a moron, and a scumbag. <laughs> Did you tell him to write your associate dean? I, I actually, so <laughs> what I actually said was um, my dean is a noted expert and nationally recognized scholar on rhetoric. And I suspect he will have a good time with anything you send him about this exchange. Man, you cut me out of the fun, uh, going straight to the top. I, I you know. That's good. No, I appreciate it. Um, so, and then we're talking like Flynn. It's only natural to pivot to unmasking, and uh -huh. we have a a an what do you call it? A boomlet echo of this faux controversy. We'll talk about that. Not a controversy, although although I do like the double entendre in this context of masking. Yeah. Well, because the right virus oh, because, masking. Because of the, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, and then as long as we're on unmasking, that will lead naturally to the Pfizer context, where maybe the most well, the Supreme Court stuff is obviously very interesting, but to me, the, the sort of yeah. the bread and butter St issue for us stuff is- ha Stuff happened today. Stuff, stuff is happening. You actually got something the leadership didn't want. Two major, two major Senate votes today, one of which, went, well, both of which went the way I expected, but one of which was a heck of a lot closer than I expected. Yeah, I think, I think I'll, we'll talk about this morning, man. I think that closeness was an illusion 
uh, that was facilitated by the fact that it was, it was clear not that right. it wasn't going to get there. Yeah, maybe uh, if it was actually uncertain, it wouldn't have been so close. Maybe. Right? Um, and then, uh, and that, that's basically it. That's plenty to talk about. Let's jump in then. Trumplandia, topic number one, Supreme Court oral argument in the, uh, the Deutsche Bank and, and Mazars cases. Uh, how, do we, how do we dive into this? Where's the first point of purchase? Uh, well, first I can say that um, some of you may already have listened to the Lawfare podcast from yesterday in which Ben, um, Quinta, Margaret Taylor, and I did a little bit of a, a postmortem initially, but so it's an excellent, but listen, let me recommend that. I listened to it. It was great. Um, right. a very even handed, I thought, um, and, and very informative roundup of what was going on. It's always alarming to me, Bobby, when I am the one who is like the most pessimistic on these podcasts, you know, I'm, I just, when I'm the one who's like, yeah, I don't think the court's going to actually do the thing I want it to do. Like I, I, I don't know. All right. Dangerous so, position to be in. So, so, so we're, we're, here's what I think we should break apart the two cases because I actually think they're very different. And yeah. I would love to ask you just what your gut reaction was to whatever you took away from the Mazars argument. Like, you know, did anything change in your mind about what you think of the big questions or how you think the Supreme Court's likely to rule? It, it's hard to answer this without setting the table by saying there's, there's the there's the question of what should happen here on any relatively straightforward application of hundred years very, of su- precedent. <laughs> very substantial. You're talking earlier. I said something about methods and modalities of argument. We talk a lot about, you know, all the methods in our common law class. And one of the methods that over uh, throughout the life of the United States has always had some weight is practical precedent or the course of government operations under a given uh, regime. And then when you combine that with when it, when you have a huge accumulation of a particular practice over time, when it seems to all be pointing one way in terms of its constitutionality over time, and you have on top of that judicial precedent that, that seems clearly to bless it all, um, there's a crystallization that occurs that makes it very implausible to come along and say, actually, you know, it turns out this whole time, this, this has been an unconstitutional activity. It's not that you can't make those arguments, but uh, they're harder. Um, so I think these, these shouldn't even be Supreme Court cases. These should be relatively simple cases disposed of at the circuit level. Um, the context, of course, is extraordinary. And yes, and yet we're here. Um, look, let me just say this. I thought that the, the arguments by, uh, by um, the Trump attorney were preposterous and stunning. The, D, the DOJ arguments were more measured. Um, as you guys emphasized on the show, there's plainly uh the the prospect of a brokered outcome here and some compromise and i and i want to unpack that and understand exactly where the lines might be but i want to say it's i think it's sort of a shame that this should be considered Close. i mean i mean these <laughs> these production requests these subpoenas right. are not directed to him so th- right. in the first place so and there's, there's not right. even an argument there's not even an argument that any presidential function is actually being burdened or disruptive, let alone to the extent that would outweigh the legitimate investigative interests. This was, this was a theme that really did not come out until Justice Kagan's questions, I think to Jeff Wall, I think to the, it wasn't even just to Strawbridge, it was to, because um, one of the, one of, I thought yesterday, Bobby, this is sort of a, a very superficial point, but I actually thought yesterday really drove home why I hate this format for Supreme Court arguments, um, where especially when there are two lawyers on one side, as there were in both of the tr- cases on Trump's side, um, 
there's just there's no flow to the argument yeah. and no follow up. There's no there's no real effort to follow up. The justices spend most of their time asking their questions and not really getting an answer. And so it wasn't until I think Justice Kagan was questioning Jeff Wall, like you know what, fourteen justices in, right, that she finally said, well, "Wait a second, like the president doesn't have to do anything to comply with these subpoenas." Nope. Um, and the theme that came out was, and Ben asked this question on the, on the Lawfare podcast, which is, so how do you write the opinion where Trump wins, right? And the theme that Alito, I think, was really trying to get out was the notion of presidential embarrassment as an article. Yeah, to, this is the, the harassment theory. Right. So, and, 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 and it's, just, it's worth stressing that there are plenty of cases, um, Nixon versus Fitzgerald, foremost among them, where the Supreme Court recognizes absolute immunity for anything the president does while he's in office, that are thoroughly concerned with the potential that litigation would take the president away from his duties as president. Um, of course, this is a president who tweets 150 times a day, but c'est la vie. Um, the problem in these cases is that there's just no specter of that here because these aren't subpoenas to him. There's and literally right. no, the only discernible or describable harm is the possibility of something that could be on the spectrum that runs from gosh, I don't like that, right. to this is actually humiliating to the point of what is the theory that like, I can't do my job because I'm so upset about it. The idea that there's a judicially administrable principle of, of presidential harassment in a context where every single thing about the adversary political process feels like harassment to every occupant right. of the office. Right. Preposterous. Also, and, and also but Bobby, Congress's job is to like oversight. Right. No, no, to harass. This, if we take the separation of power seriously, as we're supposed to do, according to these arguments, then then you can't say like, well, the president might might his feelings might be hurt, or let's put it more fairly, the president might be just really uh, sorry. This could lead to trouble for the president. But but it's settled that you can sue the president. You can you can do proceedings, but so, but so this is where so so this is where I thought so this is where I thought there was a real space between Strawbridge's arguments on behalf of um, Stockbridge. I, I keep saying Strawbridge. Strawbridge is the eighteen oh six Supreme Court case about the first. Was it Daryl Strawberry? You're thinking it was Stockbridge, um, right? Well, between the president oh, Stockbridge to Boston, right? Indeed. Thank you, James Taylor. Um, nice. So there's a real space, right, between his argument, which is no, never, like you can't bother the president. And as I think Breyer tried to point out, can't be reconciled with can't be, cannot be five, it's, it's, six, it's, seven Supreme Court cases. And he came pretty close at one point to saying, you know, that Nixon is wrong, that Clinton versus Jones is wrong, and. There well, that be, would be a more intellectually honest way of advancing that proposition because you can't distinguish. But, but this is what's interesting, right? Which is here, there's a real value to the president of having both his personal lawyers and the Justice Department because in both cases, in both the congressional cases and in the Vance case, DOJ takes a far narrower and more nuanced position yep. that by default has the visual of being more yep. reasonable no, even it's, it's not. It's basic cognitive psychology, you know, Kahneman stuff and Tversky yeah. stuff. It's anchoring. You get this, you get the stalking horse to come out the gate, set in the boundary way out right. here. That's in a crazy. Position. Oh, but now you sound reasonable. You come in with the very reasonable sort of middle position. Right. And you slice the baloney down to and, that. And, 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 the, and the nub of the DOJ's reasonable position is putting teeth into the legitimate legislative purpose test, right? And the notion that forget about presidential harassment. 
right, this case should rise and fall on Congress's articulation of a purpose that is that goes beyond of a purpose that actually is defendable, defensible, right, related to why you went after the president. Right. And now, in in, yeah. in theory, depending on how that gets cashed out, there's a uh, there's a reasonable separation of powers grounding for that kind of approach. There's a separate problem of how do you square that with past practice, but it all depends on how much what kind of teeth you put into the mouth of that beast. Um, do you think? That that is an is is the right way to understand the pitch for the legitimate investigative uh, sorry legislative purpose test is that exclusive of the oversight function such that it is a purpose that requires there being if not the actual bill right. the uh, more than notional or theoretical possibility of a bill. So I think that's I think that is a, a, a one way of describing the the SG's position. I think the problem is that it has the effect of formalizing distinctions between Congress's functions that have no basis in the Constitution, right? So this was my objection to Judge Rao's dissent. Judge Rao's dissent in the D.C. Circuit in the Mazars case focused on the notion that Congress can't issue a subpoena like this outside the context of impeachment. But the Constitution doesn't have an on-off switch where it says, okay, Congress, you're in impeachment mode now, as opposed to... Now you may investigate. Right. So I, I think, you know, I think it's going to be very hard for the justices to come up with anything that limits legislative purpose to legislation, right? I think it's going to be much easier for them to say um, that where the information involves a, the president of the United States, there's like a higher degree of scrutiny to whether the purpose is legitimate. And here's where things get really tricky, Bobby. And this is where I thought Jeff Wall, the one place where I thought he really tripped up, so I thought he otherwise did very well yesterday, um, was, I don't remember who asked him the question, but there was a question about pretext, right? And how um, the government's position, Justice Thomas even said this out loud once. He said, we all know they did this to get Trump. And it's like, okay, fine. But like- Is that the same way we all know that Trump did the executive order to get the immigrants? I mean- This is- <laughs> Bobby, like, yes. Do, do, we, do we do pretext, smoke out the pretext analysis here, or do we not do it? So this was, this was about the point where I threw things at my computer yesterday. So the, in the travel ban case, as recently as two years ago, right, the Supreme Court says we're not going to look behind, right, the, the facial justifications, the, the facially legitimate justifications offered for the policy. And I'm a, I'm a believer, and I will not necessarily get a lot of people to agree, but I'm a big believer that pretext actually is appropriate as a consideration when it's the executive, because it's one person, right? Whereas it's not appropriate for legislatures because those are multi-member bodies. But it's certainly not the case, Bobby. It's not the reverse. And it's the reverse. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Where, where it's appropriate to look behind why a multi-member legislature does something, but it's never appropriate to look behind why the president does something. I mean, this is just... Well, so, it's especially interesting from that perspective, if you're talking about people who may otherwise be inclined towards it, deep skepticism of trying to deter a purposivist reading of statutes, yep. trying to glean legislative purpose from what the collective body thought. Right. People who are reluctant to do that, typically you associate that with being conservative. So- Textualists. You know, you to, well, Ryan, you need to sort of carry that principle forward there if you're going to be intellectually honest about it. I will say, I mean, I don't think Doug Letter, who argued for the House, did himself any favors um, in pushing back against some of these lines of questioning. But I thought Justice Kagan, who- I think is really astute as a watcher of her colleagues, right? I thought she, picking up how things were going, um, planted the seeds for a compromise that could be very attractive to the Chief Justice. And the seeds would be um, to put more, to, to just ignore 
Trump's personal lawyer's arguments. Um, to focus entirely on the legitimate, the legitimate legislative purpose inquiry, to put more teeth into it, but then to split the difference among the subpoenas um, and to throw out um, what I guess it was the oversight committee. I, I, I'm going to get something wrong. To, to throw out the one that just was like a total um, fishing expedition. Uh, fishing expedition. Yeah. But, but the hipsy subpoena, I mean, she kept asking about the hipsy subpoena. Right. Right. Where she says, wait a second, like, you know, the the government is looking into whether there's, you know, Congress is investigating foreign interference in the 2016 presidential election. Right. This is not using the president as one example of 330 million when it comes to financial records. Right. This is the president as one of the two candidates and indeed the preferred candidate of the country whose interference we are investigating. Right. Um, and I think what she was holding out there was, hey, Chief Justice Roberts, let's slap Congress around a little, right? But let's uphold at least one, maybe two of the subpoenas and split the baby. So kind of a uh, United States versus Lopez sort of shot across the congressional bow, a seed that's not going to grow much of a tree. Um, I, you know, it, that, if that's the outcome, that makes a lot of sense. It'd be a very pragmatic outcome, I suppose. But I just wonder, what is the wisdom of injecting into the doctrine of the court this new rule that right. would then have to be endlessly litigated, endlessly right. litigated. Because when, when is it about the president? Because right, if, if the recipient of the subpoena is not the president, how are, you, how, how are you gonna define the category of cases where a subpoena does or does not trigger this heightened legitimate legislation? Right, are you, gonna, are you really gonna make it, so I guess what I'm suggesting is this isn't a, this isn't a judicially administrable rule line to draw in the sand. You don't wanna yeah. open the final litigation. If the idea is, well, we'll cabinet so it only really arises in cases implicating the president, like, you know, we'll, we'll cite presidential, you know, separation of powers concerns and say it's a real good, a ticket good only for that kind of ride. Uh, really? Like, so that's how it works. And it, it strikes me as potentially very problematic. However, if, if the pathway to avoid an outcome, if the chief or Brett Kavanaugh, if they are unwilling and Gorsuch too. I don't know who. I don't understand who's going to come down where on this, other than maybe uh, Alito and Thomas. But um, if if they feel like they cannot sign off on the principle that there's not a judicial role to limit this, that they need that limiting principle that that Alito was searching for, um, then some form of legitimate. I wouldn't say legislative purpose. It needs to be a legitimate congressional right. purpose because it, it. I think it's problematic to describe Congress as having only the uh, the legislative enactment function when there's a, a, a whole train of predecessory I mean, Bobby, investigative interests ben, that I mean, have to be there to inform legislation eventually. I, I mean, Ben was right, right? This is a hard opinion to write. Um, and and it's going to be, and so so I think that's why, right, Kagan's, and, and Kagan and Breyer, I think, would be the ones who would say, listen, chief, we'll trade you. Right, we'll we'll go with you to throw out a couple of these subpoenas and to endorse a higher, if messy, standard. If you give right. us the hipsy and maybe the the the, the oversight uh, subpoena, it'd be very NFIB v, NFIB versus Sibelius to yep. be able to say, "All right, this was a terrible subpoena. Congress can't go fishing like this. All, all these, but tanks. this one, and and but even more importantly, though, like yes, politically, most importantly, this one being okay is is a big deal." But, but perhaps most importantly over the long term, when you cash out the doctrinal positions being staked out, don't let it become some, you know, highly litigated, right. endlessly okay. indeterminate standard. Um, um, what, but, about, but, what about Vance? Wait, can I say one more thing before yeah. we get to Vance? 
Um, so I, I tweeted this yesterday. So I think whatever happens in Mazars, it's going to be the third of what we're going to think of as the big three of Supreme Court decisions with regard to personal litigation against the president. And the first one was U.S. versus Nixon in 74, which Nixon lost 8 nothing. The yep. second was Clinton versus Jones in 97, which Clinton lost 9 nothing. Um, whatever happens in Mazars, Bobby, the one thing I'm confident about is it's not going to yeah. be 9 nothing. I, I agree with that, because after all, Clarence Thomas is not sure that Congress can engage in investigations, period. Of anything. Um, <laughs> and, and I just have to say that I, I thought think, that, was, that was actually a, a fascinating moment. I, I, just think, I just think that that would be a even if even if one of the subpoenas is sustained right if it's if it's five four if it's if if they can't peel off if they can if they peel if, if only the chief joins the lefties i i just I, I think that's a bad moment for the court all right um vance vance so so what's different about vance so vance is different in two respects right it's different one this is a criminal subpoena not a congressional subpoena um and the supreme court has already said the president himself can be subjected to a criminal subpoena. And this one wasn't. This one, again, was to Mazars. Um, yep. But, but, and here's the but, two, it's in state court. And so this raises the question that the Supreme Court expressly reserved in Clinton versus Jones about whether the president's um, liability, right, to be sued civilly in federal court for conduct that predates his term in office um, extends to state court. Um, and once again, the Trump administration, uh, sorry, Trump's personal lawyers, um, led by Jay Sekulow, who argues in the Supreme Court like he appears on Fox News. Um, He's a voice raiser. Oh, yeah. Um, the, the, tr- the president's personal lawyers, the president's categorically immune from any process in state court. Ever. Phrase, abs- temporary absolute immunity? Or temporary, absolute temporary absolute immunity. T-A-I. Um, that did not sit well, even with the chief justice. Um, once again, right, the SG, um, this time it was actually the SG, Noel Francisco, um, has a much more, at least seemingly moderate position, which is that the subpoena should be subjected to the so-called heightened need standard or special need standard, um, which is derived from a DC circuit case, Bobby, that was about an executive privilege claim. And the question was, how should a subpoena be um, weighed, right, against a valid claim of executive privilege? Um, which the, to be clear listeners there's no claim <laughs> of privilege there couldn't be I mean there couldn't there be isn't one it wasn't the there president couldn't be one. There's, there's no privilege at issue it's just it's just I don't want to so I think we can spend less time on Vance because I think the, I think he's going to lose Vance and I think he's going to lose it badly is it fair to say that the, the, the essence of the concern the legitimate interesting question is is there a federalism interest that makes it somehow so impalatable to contemplate that state level prosecutorial authorities which you know who knows you have an elected da in this place and they're they're in it for the politics and you kept you kept hearing yesterday about the 2300 district attorneys across the country i like some of them you know just find one and they can they can bring something that it requires it requires taking the uh sort of the worst case scenario imagining that that could arise that that turns into a burden but but then you're reminded oh wait what's the burden again What's the burden? Right, on there's, the no, president's there's no burden, but, but it gets better. No burden. But it gets better. So, so Carrie Dunn, the general counsel of the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, who I thought was fantastic. Um, so Carrie said at one point, I, want, I don't remember the exact language he used, but he said, it's worth stressing 
that this can't happen everywhere, right? The, it's, it's not typical that a president has ongoing financial interests that subject him to the continuing oversight and scrutiny of a local or state prosecutor. I mean, right, that, you know, Trump is a unicorn when it comes to this phenomenon, and most of the 2,300 prosecutors in the country couldn't possibly exercise jurisdiction over Trump, as opposed to Manhattan DA, because that's where all the Trump shit is. So I thought that was an important point. Um, I, I didn't hear, um, with maybe with the exception of Thomas, I didn't hear any of the conservative justices really biting Bobby on the yeah. federalism argument. I mean, because the problem is, the, the central problem with the Vance case is that unless you're going to overrule Clinton versus Jones, um, then right. everything has to rise and fall on state courts not being allowed to do something federal courts are allowed to do. Right. And Clinton v. Jones isn't exactly Morrison v. Olson, is it? Um, no, although Alito tried, right? So Alito, I don't know if you, I, I don't know if you caught this question. So I think it was Alito at one point who said, who asked Kerry Dunn, um, you know, what do you, isn't it true that, you know, Clinton versus Jones, it turned out actually that what the court thought would be like not a big impact on the president was a terrible prediction and it was really, really bad. Don't you mean Morrison v. Olson? There's, there's Alito with his consequences again. Um, and, <laughs> such consequentialist. and Kerry, I, I thought this was, a, I mean, I, I, he clearly was prepped for this question because he had a really thoughtful, he said, you know, actually Justice Alito, just, you know, to clarify things, um, the litigation in Clinton versus Jones was proceeding just fine and without any real significant impediment to the president until he lied in his deposition, right? And the notion that we should be, wor you know, the notion that it was that the litigation was the burden as opposed to the fact that the president chose to perjure himself, right, is, is you know, not something that really sort of seems to call Clinton versus Jones into question. Stop hitting yourself. Stop hitting yourself. Basically. So, so I, unless I'm, I mean, unless, to be fair, the justices were clearly tired. I mean, this, the, this, these arguments went like three and a half hours, which is an hour and a half longer than they, than they would have gone had they been live, um, meaning live in person. Um, but, but I, just, I just didn't have the sense that any, that any of the conservatives' hearts were in it the way that they were in the Mazars case. Yeah. Don't you wish they'd done it on Zoom? We all could have watched in gallery view and that there was some Zoom bombing. I feel like there's a Saturday Night Live skit just waiting to happen that only the legal nerds would enjoy. So I'll just say this. The last thing. there the star comes parachuting in through Zoom bombing. There have been some pretty funny Twitter exchanges about what a Zoom SCOTUS argument would look like. Um, but I will just say one last thing because we have to talk about the toilet flush, right? Um, oh, yeah. You so, mean the Frank Drebin moment. So, so, you know, this was, the first, this was the first time the Supreme Court has ever live-streamed arguments over the last two weeks, uh, wrapping up today. And, you know, I think it's really unfortunate that the toilet flush that made it into the audio of one of the arguments last week is what people are going to sit with. Because I actually think, although I hate the format, Bobby, with each justice going yeah, yeah. and only having two minutes, I think that the live-streaming went fine. Right. And so, you know, my my fervent hope is that the court sees this as a good example of why they shouldn't fear live streaming when they're back sitting on the bench where they don't have to do this facocta seriatim approach to questioning. Because um, I thought the live stream piece of it itself was actually really interesting and useful. And, you know, I did not have the sense that there was any kind of grandstanding or pandering. Agreed simply because it was being live streamed. Right, right. It helps that it wasn't visual. Now, what's, your, what's the prevailing theory on how the toilet flush uh, sound occurred? <sighs> Does anyone know? I mean, did people speculate? Because that's, I mean, it's straight out of the naked gun. So the, 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 
other than just that someone forgot to, you know, flush their toilet um, or someone forgot they were not on mute. Um, the best, the best theory I've heard, although I don't want to endorse it because it could have been any of the nine of them. Um, well, it wouldn't have been the chief. The chief would never have dared. Um, so the best theory I've heard is that hospital toilets are especially loud. Um, and Justice Ginsburg was in fact participating in the argument from her freaking hospital bed. Oh so, yeah. That's amazing. Um, that's very interesting. A point about these, uh, this model enables the justices not to be in the room with each other to do this. Very interesting. And, and, and I actually think, you know, we, we won't know for a very long time how that messes up the dynamic, um, right, when they can't see each other's faces, when they can't, like, you know, engage with each other during the argument. Because, you know, I think a lot of the arguments I've seen, Bobby, there's a lot of the justices talking to each other during the argument. Yeah, I think there's absolutely. a lot less of that in this format. Yeah, that's the reality of a lot of these arguments. It's, it's a debate between them. Yeah. All right. All right. Sorry. Uh, too much, no, no, too much Supreme Court. Uh, too much toilet talk. Um, so the Justice Department oh, God. has um, broken some China by coming in with this extraordinary uh, attempt to get the Mike Flynn case dismissed after they won the case and after Mike Flynn allocated to the, which is fancy law talk for admitted to the facts uh, in, in a sworn setting, uh, the facts against him and the crime he committed. And it's now being sort of, uh, I, I don't know that we want to go in the same level of weeds on this one, um, but I am quite confident you and I both agree that A, the uh, FBI's uh, investigation at the time of the key conversation interview with him was in fact obviously well predicated. B, and so stop me if I say something you don't agree with, B, that the fact that there had been an earlier phase of the investigation that was going to wind down, but then new information came in that clearly satisfied predication and rather than somehow weirdly formalistically saying, okay, first let's shut it down, then let's immediately reopen it, they just kept it open because now it was more clearly predicated. So that whole thing's a red herring. And then C, that it is truly extraordinary and not a position the Justice Department has ever taken in any other case that so far anyone's been able to identify since the crime of lying to the FBI has been on the books. It's utterly unprecedented to argue that you actually – Turns out there's an unwritten implied exception there where you can lie to the FBI during an investigation if later on we can persuade a court or you can persuade the court that the investigation itself wasn't properly predicated. That is an so, so that so that, so that in retrospect, the lie becomes immaterial. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and it goes without saying the idea that it's not what he actually lied about, the, his lies to the vice president for that matter, um, that these weren't material is, is uh, does not pass the rule 11 frivolity test. So, so not for the first time in this episode, in this podcast and not for the last time in this episode, right? Um, once again, the Trumpistas are gravitating towards something that has been a real bone for, you know, public defenders and criminal defense lawyers for decades, Bobby, but in a way that is only going to be good for one freaking train. Right. You know, look, I, this, the whole thing is driving me nuts because we're supposed to disagree a lot on this show. <laughs> um, you know, you're supposed to be the sort of the, the voice of the left. I'm, I'm more of a voice of the right. And um, I'm, supposed, I'm, I'm supposed to be the one who sees like, you know, um, don't trust the government. They do shady things. They don't actually, you know, there are no principles anymore. Like, and you're the, like, you guys are making it hard on me. They're making it easy on you. I was going to say, this is, this is, this is rich. This is, this is fertile time for me and my, and my, you know, liberal paranoia. I do think it's very funny that there are probably people who, you know, don't know anything about us, but who listen to the show and just assume it's, 
maybe two lefties just like kind of agreeing on everything. Uh, we agree on the rule of law and we True. agree about uh, being good lawyers. Well, as I, and, 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 and as I said before, I don't actually think I'm nearly as far left as it looks like today. It's just like the way, you know, I actually, I've often, and you've, I think you said the same thing. Like I often think of myself as a centrist. Um, it's just that, you know, the, <laughs> the center is, is not holding. It's a, the center can't hold. Um, all right. So I don't know if we need to say anything more about this. I, so, so I want to say, I want to say two things. To talk about what the, that we got to talk about the thing you've been fighting with your trolls about. Um, Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure uh, 48, I, I think, <laughs> make me laugh because you've been given such a hard time about this when it's not even remotely disputable. There's no, there is no dispute that the court will decide whether or not, for very good reasons, the court will decide whether or not to allow the government to drop the case. That's, that's, why, it's called a, that's why it's called a motion to dismiss. It's not like a stipulation of dismissal. Right, exactly. Now, there's, and there's, there are all sorts of possibilities. Um, you know, imagine you know, corruption of the prosecutor, all yeah. sorts of possibilities for why the court plays an independent role here. Judge Sullivan is not only likely to, but now clearly is <laughs> taking that role very seriously. Uh, you Sullivan's know about pissed. You know about the appointment of Judge Gleason, I assume. I do know about the appointment of Judge Gleason. So, well, well, so first he pissed everybody off by saying he was willing to accept amicus briefs, um, right? Which, which, which pr provoked a filing from Flynn's lawyers, Bobby, that you have to read to believe. I mean, it is just like one of the most tendentious legal filings I've ever seen in a high-profile criminal case. But um, then, right, late today, he appointed retired, what, Eastern District Judge? Eastern District, EDNY. Right? Bro uh, Brooklyn Federal Judge John Gleason. Um, yep. to participate as an amicus to argue about whether Sullivan should hold Flynn in contempt. And this is what's really fascinating. So um, Sullivan's probably going to have a pretty hard time under the extant case law um, denying the government's motion to dismiss the, the false statements indictment just because, you know, he'd have to actually have pretty clear evidence of, of prosecutorial mouth, like bad faith. And you and I might think this is bad faith, but not that kind of bad faith. Um, I agree with that. But he still has inherent contempt power that DOJ can't take away from him, um, right? All federal judges have inherent contempt power. And so he's going to, you know, he wants to figure out whether even if he dismisses the 1001 conviction, um, right. He, can, right, he can turn around and hold uh, Flynn in criminal contempt, in inherent contempt, just without, you know, without DOJ's blessing. And what would that be for? What was the contemptuous conduct? Um, lying to the FBI. Interesting. How, how common is it to, you, I, I recognize that normally you don't have or, to. Well, it's probably, or, or lying at his allocution. I mean, that's now, yeah, right. No, that's so that's that's where I was going with it. I think that uh, the line of the FBI, I don't know about because I feel like yeah, yeah. Thousand, 1001 kind of occupies the field, but line um, of the allocution. Well, that, I mean, there is the question, right? So, did you come in here and lie in your allocution? Because, now, and, and the irony is, if he didn't, then Sullivan will get it right. I mean, like, if, if here's the thing, I can almost hear Clark Neely saying, defendants lie in plea agreements because of plea agreements and the leverage the government has, people routinely. And this is probably true to some extent. The, the defendants routinely admit to things in their allocution because that's the package deal that they don't actually really believe themselves to be true. Um, I'm not saying that's always the case, but it, clearly it does happen sometimes. So is it, is it a little rich to, in light of that reality? That it might I be. Think, 
it's might, too much to say, like, how, it, how dare you have lied? It might be, but, you know, um, God bless Judge Sullivan for at least briefing the matter, right? And, and, and I mean, he hasn't ruled yet. Like, I mean, this, you know, this, sure. may, not, this may not go anywhere. But the, I will just the say... The problem is he's going to put them through their paces, and in the end, the case will get dropped. Well, unless the paces take eight months. And then the, the, the shoe that hasn't dropped yet, where's the pardon to make it all go away? And of course, oh. the answer to that is the answer that's the common answer to many of these fact patterns. This particular president would very much like to have someone else be the face right. of the action. And so the pardon, as, as Bill Clinton knows, you know, the act of the pardon, you can't blame them on someone else very easily. So it will hang on you. He seems to be curiously reluctant to use the pardon power in some of the more publicly sensitive. Wait, 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 wait till he loses an election. I mean, can oh, you yeah, no, no, I do, don't get me wrong. Like, I'm not saying he's not going to go bonkers, uh, you know, in his final period, when, whether that's coming up soon or coming up in four years. Um, but he has been actually quite reluctant to, uh, to go the political route. He routinely goes in other contexts with his pardon power, which is interesting. He's done some things, don't get me wrong. But All right, uh, that's Mike Flynn. Now, Mike Flynn, uh, part of the excitement around Mike Flynn that we often hear about is unmasking. What a, what a perfectly uh, pejorative-sounding term. Unmasking, well, you don't, you, don't, you don't tug the mask off the old Lone Ranger, so unmasking must be bad, right? Surely, Steve, the, the Trump administration doesn't ever make unmasking requests on American citizens, does it? Just, just keep talking. I'm just I'm, so I'm, listeners. I'm, I will now narrate what what is appearing on the Zoom screen. Steve, Steve is is there's steam coming out of his ears. Could it be Steve because there's more than ten thousand such requests every year from the Trump administration? As by the way, as there properly should be, because the customers, not the investigators, the customers for whom the intelligence is being collected ultimately, when there is foreign intelligence collected. And it involves either a communication with a U.S. person or about a U.S. person. If it's real foreign intelligence, such as, hey, something's happening with the Russians. What is their ambassador up to? Is there a deal going on here involving sanctions? Huh. Kislyak is talking to an American person. Would it be helpful for foreign intelligence analytic purposes, Steve, to know who the U.S. person is? Nah. Nah, it could be. It's just the pizza guy. Um, the idea that there's anything inherently wrong with unmasking is flat stupid. The interesting question is, okay, normally in the right circumstances, it's fine. Is there a reason to think that in this particular case involving Mike Flynn, that something shady was going on? I don't see how anyone can make that argument in good faith if they're really looking at what was going on in that context. I mean, that's because that's you worry about good faith. I just, I really wonder, like, is there a good faith argument that it was really improper to want to know who U.S. person one was no. in a phone call with Kislyak that seemed no. to be involved? No, in all of the outrage, all of the outrage depends upon misrepresenting what happened, depends upon portraying this as out, as unusual, depends upon the, the fact that one of the people who was aware of the unmasking was Biden, right? Probably because it was part of his intelligence brief on a particular day. I mean, th this is, they're so desperate to try to come up with some scandal to define the presidential campaign and distract from, you know, the 80,000 people who have died from coronavirus and the fact that there is no plan at the federal level to deal with coronavirus. And so this is... And come on, there's a plan. They're going to be the backstop. If states need something, they got it. Call us. That's not a plan. Um, 
that's not, not a plan. Um, all right, so we don't want to we don't want to bog down too much in this. The unmasking controversy is no controversy. Fundamental fact: um, it would have been a dereliction. The the, the the terrible Politico story today is a controversy because it you know bought oh, the one that like the, the one that kind of like magnified it as yes. a controversy. I yes. saw that. That was that was yes. weak. Politico. Yes, yes. Uh, which is a reminder though that at the end of the day, you say what you want about. Fox News and all the rest, but there's a common problem that all of the information propagation enterprises, I guess we'll call it media, have in common, which is they're under extraordinary economic nightmarish pressures to keep their business models alive and they need clicks. Or else they, or in any event, they need to keep their personnel and staffing levels so thin in some cases that they're not providing an appropriate editorial oversight for how because things. I, I mean, I, I think you can't do, you can't you can't look at one of those without the other, right? Because you know this is. I mean, I, I I deal with this all the time in my sort of CNN Supreme Court hat, right? Which is you know speed versus accuracy when you've just yeah. when you've all just received like this seventy-five page Supreme Court opinion. You can't be last to market with that commentary. Yeah, but you also can't be wrong, and so and so the you know I, I just I think. The demise. Well, that's the beauty of having no truth anymore. Like, well, you can't be wrong. Who's wrong? What do you mean it was seven to two? You can have um, a different opinion. So the yes, it's your opinion that that's what the thing says. Um, so the, facts, so the, I I think I think the the we talk a lot about the death of expertise and the demise of expertise and the decline of expertise. And I just think that the media, not all the media, but but more of the media than I'm comfortable with, um, goes to print about things that require some expert knowledge where basic facts about how things work or basic understandings are just not in the ballpark. And I just think, you know, now more than ever, we need especially the flagship outlets to be especially careful because, you know, the, the last thing you want to do is feed the notion, like even Politico says this is a scandal, right? I mean, like- Right, right, no, exactly. Well, so clearly the obvious policy prescription here is everybody should just listen to this podcast. I mean, obviously. <laughs> All right. So talking about unmasking, uh, at the end of the day, that gets us into the realm of foreign intelligence, as we Ooh, said. Today da, da, da. was a big day. It was a big day. Surveillance Act. It big was. Day. Um, pretty good C-SPAN watching, I got to say. Although I made the mistake of during one of the quorum calls, I kind of yeah. watched it for a minute. And they just, I guess they got, you know, they got a tap dance to pass the time. So they got a, they got a journalist on there and he was answering questions. And they just started taking calls. And I realized that that was a mistake. That's no, like just like randomly reading. No, Twitter. no, don't take, don't take the calls, Bobby. Don't take the calls, man. All right. So, so, so let's remind everyone where we are. So as we've talked about in some detail, right, there are three, or as you like to say, three and a half provisions of FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, that were set to expire first on December 31st of last year. And then there was a temporary reauthorization to March 15th. And then they expired. We had National Cupcake Day as a deadline. We had the Ides of March as a deadline. And then, damn, they didn't just let the thing die. Right. So this is the House bill um, that is what's called a clean reauthorization, basically where the House bill would simply, without changing a single word of the substantive authorities, just change the dates to December 31st, 2023. So it's a basically... Can down the road. Right. It's a two and a half, although really three-year reauthorization. And, that and let's remind people, because yeah. long-time listeners will know, but let's just remind everybody, this isn't about Pfizer writ large. In fact, it's about some relatively uh, off-to-the-side issues that were all impacted uh, by the USA Patriot Act and, and subsequent renewals and so forth. So what we've got is, one, uh, the so-called lone wolf provision, which is a 
uh, modification to the scope of scenarios in which a person could be deemed to be an agent of a foreign power and therefore could become the subject of a Title I electronic surveillance order. Um, never gets used, but it's there. Uh, secondly, the oft used, and I would think extremely important and completely run of the mill for criminal investigators, roving wiretap provision, which deals with the fact that you know who your target is, but they may have a whole bag full of cell phones. You don't want to have to come back and no one should have to come back time and again to get new applications for each new phone the person burns through. And then thirdly, the section 215 business records provision, or it's got various names, but the idea is it's a requirement of production of documents or records from third parties who may have something that's relevant to an investigation. And the key to understand there is you do go to the FISA court for it, but it just requires a basically a certification of relevance, a modest standard that is below the level of having to make a full probable cause showing that the target of your investigation is an agent of a foreign power. So it's relatively easy to use, just as subpoenas are relatively easy to use. Um, that got a special use after 9-11, a complex story boiled down. That was one of the authorities at various times that was used to try to, uh, or to effectively draw from the telecom companies bulk telephone uh, toll records or call detail records on who called whom. And so it became entangled with and associated with that particular application, which then gets modified in the USA Freedom Act in certain complex ways. And, and as to that particular application, absolutely legitimate controversy and, and real reasonable real room for reasonable disagreement. Um, but the effect of the sunset on Section 215 isn't, isn't just to get rid of the framework that allows some quasi bulk collection to still continue. It's to get rid of the whole thing except for a really kind of almost comically narrow set of circumstances from back in the 90s when the concept was originally introduced into federal statutes. So all that's gone and the roving wiretap provision being gone and what I would call regular Section 215, not, not called detail records, but just the run-of-the-mill applications to use it to go to various companies. Those two authorities being gone for foreign intelligence investigations is, is I think, deeply problematic and not driven by, at least in general, any particular concerns that actually seem to be motivating many of the people voting against the renewal or being concerned about it. I think on the Republican side especially, those who are against it, they're playing the Mike Flynn unmasking deep state game and that that's really unsettled things and created the numbers to bulk up what, what would otherwise simply be the, the sort of the privacy hawks, the, the Ron Wyden's of the world who want to take any occasion and understandably want to take any occasion that where there's legislation moving on surveillance to build in newer additional uh, constraints. So, so the house bill comes along the Senate hasn't yet gotten around. Uh, we may have breaking news. Or I'm watching Steve. He looks like he's getting a phone call from Mike Flynn. Um, let's see here. News. FBI serves search warrant on Senator Richard Burr, Republican chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, to obtain his cell phone and Justice Department probe of his controversial stock trades. Ouch! Woo! That is, uh, that's quite something, Steve. I'm a, my train of thought is entirely derailed by that breaking news. Well, I, I don't think that will, let's just to pivot to that real quick. Serving, I think he said a search warrant, 
So no legal issues there with the propriety of going to a senator. A senator's uh, evidence of his calls and his cell phone is no more uh, protected than yours or mine. Would you agree? Um, There's policy sensitivities and political sensitivities. With a marginal exception for speech or debate clause protections, which would only attach if you use the phone, like literally, you know, I mean, the speech or debate clause does not only attach to things you say on the floor of the House and the but Senate. Does it have an investigative spillover? I, maybe, yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't, short answer is I don't think there's a, there's a claim here. Yeah, yeah. And, and, right, and, so, and the story says that Burr turned, he cooperated and turned over his phone. All right. Wow. Well, so clearly a grand jury has been impaneled to investigate insider trading by at least one, probably more than one senator. Um, and, you know, I can't say that there's anything wrong in principle with that. Um, on the back to this question of the Pfizer. No, no, that was a good breaking news. Okay, so the House presents a clean reauth, but there are both uh, privacy oriented Democrats and privacy oriented libertarian Republicans, and now uh, deep state fearful Republicans, or at least Republicans who know that a, a key part of their constituency, especially likely primary voters, uh, have been activated and trained up on deep space, cons- deep state, not deep space, nine, uh, but deep state conspiracy theories. And it's all in the news right this red hot second because of Mike Flynn. And so you had a lot of members of the Senate who were ready, or at least appeared to be ready, and then were ready later to buck the leadership, to buck uh, Senator McConnell and uh, pass amendments. So we got two amendments that were up today, Steve. Uh, first, let's talk about um, Dane's, Dane's bill. What, what was at stake in that one, and how close did it get to the finish line? So this was the. So this amendment is the, the. I think it would help to distinguish the two amendments. One is really a substantive reform, Bobby, and one's a procedural reform, right? And okay. Dane's Wyden is the substantive reform. Um, and the, the bill, I, I'm going to oversimplify it a little bit, but I don't think it's going to be material to our conversation. In a nutshell, the bill would prohibit the government from using Section 215 to collect internet metadata. Um, that is to say, sort of browser history and other data that your ISPs collect from your, you know, internet history, search history, et cetera, without a warrant. Um, so basically, as opposed to a 215 order, which has a pretty low standard of relevance um, with a couple of tweaks, right, thanks to USA Freedom, um, the government would actually need to get a search warrant and have to establish probable cause to believe um, that it was actually going to find evidence of either criminal activity or foreign intelligence activity um, if, it, if it collected internet metadata from a U.S. person. All right. So the idea here is that whereas who you dial with your phone and who you put in the two line of your emails or who you send a text message to that's all kind of envelope information but web browser urls url entries and things you type into the browser it looks like it because it shows up in that sort of spot in the mechanism but substantively there's much richer information there and so the privacy if if i'm if i'm if i'm using my web browser to figure out how i can dump my shares in you know um hospitality stocks (laughs) Too soon, too soon. Um, yeah, so there's all kinds of all kinds of search information that shows up, even if you didn't type it directly into the browser, which many people will do. Um, but if you if you have a search, it could show up in the URL in all sorts of ways that are way more revelatory than simply who should this message go to. It's not just the number. 
So um, there's a lot of logic to that in reflecting this. Wyden and Danes um, were going to uh, shift that subset of what would otherwise be within the reach of Section 215 and push it into FISA Title I, in effect. And they got this close, just a bit outside. Um, is that a real, real illustration that the majority and the leadership lost their grip on things and that the libertarian and anti-deep state wing, but really just more the libertarian influence um, is willing to buck them? Or does that prove that the, the whip count showed that cloture could hold or could not be reached and therefore some certain number of Republican senators were given permission by the leadership to, to, do a, to cast a vote it would look disobedient and would play, but would play well at home and wouldn't actually be costly. It's dangerous though, because you don't know how the, dem I mean, 10 Democrats voted no. Um, and so I don't, yeah, you know. what's that about? So, so we should say at the top, right? I mean, I think the, the politics here are very complicated. Um, and they're complicated in a couple of respects. So first, you know, as a reminder to the non-legal nerds who listen to us, um, it may surprise you, but you need 60 votes, not 50, right? To get through cloture in the Senate. Um, which means that a bill can fail with 59 votes, even though that is a decided majority, not just of the Senate, but of the country. Um, but second, I mean, part of the problem, Bobby, is that the politics were messy in both directions. You have, as you say, you know, the deep state um, conspiracy crew, um, but you also have folks who just wanted the clean reauthorization um, and who you know, may not have been opposed to this reform on substantive grounds, but are deeply fearful that an amendment that requires the bill to go back to the House will actually bog down the bill and it won't even get the, the reauthorization of those three provisions, right? So part of the problem is that I think you had at least some senators, perhaps on both sides, but especially some of the Democrats, who were opposed to the, um, the Danes widened amendment on procedural grounds, that they just wanted to get the thing to the president's desk. Um, and, didn't, and, and, and sort of save the reform conversation for later. Of course, this, you know, this is why I think sunsets are valuable. Um, so I think at least some of the 10 Democrats who voted no, that was why. But the other thing, Bobby, is apparently there was quite a heavy campaign going on in the last 24 hours before the vote with intelligence community officials, senior administration officials, DOJ people calling senators and telling them not to vote for this amendment. Um, and there's a lot of lobbying against this amendment at the last minute. You know, it's possible it wasn't as close as the 59-37 vote might make it seem. I, when I look at the Democrats who voted no, I mean, you know, Feinstein voted no. Um, who else? Um, Warner voted no. White House, right, who yeah. I think of as a pretty devoted civil libertarian, voted no. He had, a, he had a quote saying um, something to the effect of, you know, the, uh, the companies themselves have access to this information are not nearly as overseen and constrained. Right. And yes, you can say what you want about, but the government, they can do things too. Yeah, but but who's actually looking and being limited in their access to this information? So, so I think, I mean, I think the politics are complicated. I will just say though, that, you know, for, the, it is not the Democrats who have been beating a narrative about the abuses of FISA, right? Over the last, no, over the last six weeks. About and so, and so, you know, it's not just that 10 Democrats voted against this, this amendment, it's that 27 Republicans did. And Bobby, not just any 27 Republicans. I mean, um, Chairman Burr voted against this amendment. Um, Susan Collins voted against this amendment. Um, you know, Senator Cornyn voted against it. Tom Cotton voted against this amendment. But none of that surprised you. That didn't surprise me. Um, Lindsey Graham surprises me. So tell me about why Lindsey Graham surprises you. 
He's the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. He's made no bones about his concerns, or at least what he claims are his concerns, about how the FISA process has been abused, about how we need to do more to protect the civil liberties of Americans. I mean, you know, it, it doesn't surprise maybe me. The, the maybe that, these weren't the abuses he was looking for, though. Well, like, but, I assume that he's saying, first of all, <laughs> I assume he's saying those things a lot for political impact. Well, yes. but, but secondly, that he's saying them in the context of things like, oh, you know, Fair. So, no, no. So, uh, so, so, so wait, right. No, no. I, I'm, don't worry. I'm saving my ire for his no vote on the Second Amendment. Um, okay, so, so, what was the Second Amendment? So, the first one's dead. It's gone. First one's dead. Um, although, I will say this I don't think that's the last we've heard of uh, no. protection for web browser activity, which is a peculiar kind of not really so metadata metadata. Right. It's like, it's like, it's like right on the line between content and metadata. Um, and, it, and it just it illustrates the, 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 poverty of thinking in terms of envelope information without adapting to actual current technology. And, and just one last thing about this. And the 59, the, the, this just harkens back to me, Bobby, to what was it, like September of 2014 or November 2014 when the, the, the Leahy bill, right, the really, really broad, comprehensive FISA reform bill that was hashed out over the course of like six months um, after Snowden um, died by one vote in the Senate, right? Because Rand Paul voted against it because he didn't think it went far enough. Like I had a flashback to that today. Um, so the second bit, the second amendment is really one up my alley and after my own heart. So the second oh, amendment yeah. is focused on the so-called special advocate. Um, this is an idea that I was one of the folks who really tried to put teeth into back in 2014 about how to make sure the government is held to a higher standard, at least how to make sure the government has someone pushing back against it in litigation in front of the FISA court. And just to tie this back to 2014 for a second, one of the real sort of things that changed between the Leahy bill and what ultimately passes the USA Freedom Act was the significant dilution of the special advocate provision. So under the Leahy bill, the special advocate would have been a party. Under the Leahy bill, the special advocate would have had a lot of procedural rights in litigation in the FISA court. Under the USA Freedom Act, it's just an amicus, a friend of the court, who the court can choose not to invite, right, as long as they certify that they don't think it would be appropriate. And so under the USA Freedom Act, there are these panel of five amici, friends of the court, who can be called upon in cases that present, quote, a novel question of law. Um, and we know, Bobby, there have been a handful of cases where that's happened and where the amici have, by all accounts, provided valuable service. Um, so the principal thing, I mean, really the only thing that the lead Leahy Amendment does is um, it modifies, it adjusts, it, it bolsters the special advocate amicus in, a, in, in two respects. First, it expands the categories of cases in which the FISA court is allowed to call upon a special advocate. So instead of one category, now there are five. Mm -hmm. um, and second, um, it gives the special advocate some more procedural rights, so more clarity about when the special advocate can appeal to the FISA Court of Review, more rights to particular information sharing from the government, things that basically had been part of the original Leahy bill back in 2014, but then fell out in USA Freedom. And I guess I have, uh, anyway, and so to make a long story short, and this amendment passed 77 to 19. Um, right. Like, wow, that's a blowout. In the Senate. In a, Does that indicate that this doesn't matter too much? That this is modest change, tweaking a sort of good government mechanism without going on the spectrum that runs between there's no one but the government in the room arguing for granting these requests to, hey, we've got a full blown, you know, 
full representation trial in the muddy middle where you've got these sort of proxy procedures that we've gone from a 20% solution to a 30% solution here. So why not vote for it? Let me just say, it was still the case that DOJ was calling senators and telling them not to vote for this. Um, so DOJ at least didn't like this amendment either. Um, well, there's more, but there was because in part because there's more to it than just the amicus, right? There's what I think of as the Horowitz response provision. Right. So say more about that. Okay. So um, a separate part um, clarifies, I'm not sure if it's really different, but it certainly hammers home the obligation on the government to disclose to the FISA court all exculpatory information, and I'm using exculpatory here to signify right. all information that tends to disprove uh, the government's case that a person is an agent of a foreign power or that for other parts of FISA that the relevant standard perhaps is not met. Um, and it encompasses the, the full spectrum of the government, I think. I don't think it's any sort of you know, DOJ-specific inquiry. Um, and, and further, it requires a specific certification from the submitting officer that he or she collected and reviewed for accuracy and completeness the supporting documentation for each of the factual assertions. All of that is clearly responsive to and speaking directly to the Woods procedure problems that Inspector General Horowitz and his team have uncovered with uh, first the Carter Page investigation and, and the FISA applications in that case. And then, and then the follow-on first wave that we've talked about on the show before, where they pulled some 20-something other cases and just checked, like, hey, how's, how does the Woods file look? The Woods file being the file that is meant to document that everything that goes into the factual assertions in the, uh, in the declaration or affidavit to the court, um, somebody actually checked to make sure, like, what's the basis for that factual assertion? Is it a witness statement? Is it a document? Where's the documentation of what, the, where are the footnotes in effect for all this? So now that's all in the statute. Um, my sort of sense was that maybe that's where DOJ was, th this is ramping up the procedural cost and burdens, yeah. or at least providing a little more purchase for people to uh, complain after the fact. Uh, that may be right, but, so, so, but this is my problem, right? And so here I'm about to get into trouble. Um, I think this amendment is window dressing. Um, right. That, and I think, and I think part of why it's 77 to 19 is because it's, it's mostly window dressing. All right. So um, it, it, it's nice, but it's not really moving the needle much for you. So here's the problem, right? So let's just talk about the special advocate stuff for a second. So it doesn't actually cure any of the major defects with the special advocate, right? It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't put back any of the stuff that came out, any of the really big stuff that came out of the Leahy bill and, and was left out of the SA Freedom Act, right? The special what, are the, what is your sort of top three list of features you wish the special advocate had that they thus far have never had? One, the special advocate should be a party, not an amicus. Two, the special advocate- whoa, 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 Hold on, let me do one at a time. How would, the, how would party status as opposed to amicus status, setting aside case right. or controversy type issues- Yeah, yeah. which you can solve. Or, or, yeah, um, you can make them a party, I guess, um, sort of guarding that litem style. Uh, what would they be able to do that they can't do even under this bill? So they'd have they'd have procedural rights they still don't have under this bill, right? They'd have they'd have rights to pursue information they might not have under this bill. But here's the big problem, and this ties to number two. Um, as a party, their participation would not depend upon the discretion of the FISA court judge. And what what the the the, the critical thing this amendment does not do is it does not change the fact that in all of the cases in which the FISA court is allowed to enlist a special advocate, it still has discretion not to, right? That is to say, the, the court still can certify under each of these categories 
right? That um, they don't think of a special advocate appropriate. And Bobby just, you is, know. Is it clear that there's a problem of the court having cases of the kind that these provisions had in mind? Yes. Where the FISA judges are not bringing the, uh, the special advocate in? So I, I can think of one specific example, right, since the Freedom Act, where the, where the FISA court said, I've decided I don't need a special advocate. And we were all like, what the hell are you talking about? Um, and who knows if there are others. But the larger problem, Bobby, is as, you, as, you, as I'm sure you recall, one of the principal critics of the special advocate proposal was a FISA court judge, right? It was Judge Bates. Bates. Um, and I just, you know, this is maybe the difference between, this is back to one of the, maybe the core differences between you and me, but I just, you know, I don't think it makes sense to have a system where the accountability mechanism can decide whether it's going to be aided by additional accountability mechanisms. Right, as opposed to having multiple overlapping interlocking accountability mechanisms that don't control each other. I hear what you're saying. I, I would be willing if 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 you can persuade me or if someone eventually can persuade me that this mechanism has been created, but in cases that on their face present the sorts of issues for which it was created, the FISA court just isn't they're looking the other way and pretending it's not there, then I'd be very concerned. I'd be much more drawn to your argument. Um, I'm not persuaded that that's been happening. But, 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 just, but just to drive home the point, right? And so the, the four new categories of cases where the court has discretion to appoint a special advocate, right? One of them is cases involving, I think it's what, sensitive investigative information. Right. Right. Um, that's basically the Carter Page, you know, provision. Right. right? Because th this is sensitive investigative matters is a uh, sort of a term of art in this world. From the, uh, the, from the DOJ manual, right? The, the uh, Justice Department uh, uses that to describe situations where an investigation actually implicates a public official or somebody who's in, in other positions of political or religious prominence or media prominence. There's, there's a, all the things you might expect would fall under that heading. And the idea in the, in the DOJ context is, all right, in those cases, we, in theory, should require much higher levels of approval. Doesn't mean you don't investigate those people. They're not above the law. Um, but you got to be more careful because the obvious sensitivity. So the idea here is, and, and I actually think this to me is like why this is actually a pretty big deal that this, by the way, of course, the House may reject all this. Who knows? Um, we'll see. It's got to go back to the House now since there's been a change. But the Leahy-Lee Amendment, by opening up the possibility of Fisk amicus involvement in cases where there's nothing novel about the legal issue, but it's just that the case is touching on a target who's in that sensitive category. It, to me, that crosses a Rubicon. That's a huge deal. And this actually maybe is a better reason for why DOJ was expressing anxiety here because the work to be done by the amicus in that case presumably isn't about the legal aspects. It's about the factual. And it's, pouring, right, it's, it's pouring over. It's pouring over the, the it's, I mean, it's pouring over the, the woods file. Exactly. And the, and the affidavit itself and that, is a Rubicon that has never been crossed to my knowledge in the FISA context. And, and by the way, and may never, and may never be because it's still up to the judge. May, may be, but the Rubicon, the bridge has been built, even if the judge hasn't invited someone to walk over it. And there's, and I will say there's never been, this bridge has never existed. Right. And no other country has that bridge. I understand that. And this is like, I went back and read some of my original, like back in the summer of 2013, Carrie Cordero and I had it out in like a series of posts on Lawfare about, you know, I think Carrie called it the most um, oversight laden foreign intelligence activity in the history of the planet. Um, and I said, yeah, great. Um, so that didn't um, good ice for you? No. So I, here's the problem. Two problems, Bobby. One, um, 
still, it, I'm not convinced that back when no one thought this was a thing, the FISA judge would have thought that the Carter Page case required the appointment of an amicus, right? So, so it's not clear to me even that provision would have had the desired effect. But two, and this is the bigger one. I, I will agree with that point. I think if a, a judge then would have thought they did not have the authority to bring in someone to look at the FBI's- And didn't uh, need to. I mean, but also just didn't need to, right? But, but the, the second thing, and I think this is the larger problem for me, is even if we expect FISA judges to exercise their discretion under these provisions, the provisions are so subjective, right? So the, the sensitive investigative matter definition, right, is ultimately up to the FISA court judge. There's another provision that says you can appoint a special an amicus in cases that raise civil liberties issues. What the hell is a civil liberties <laughs> issue? That's all of them. They all raise right? civil liberties and, issues. And so, and so one of the things I don't understand, and I mean, I, I, had, I had sort of suggested this at an earlier phase in the, in the drafting of, 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 of earlier version of this amendment, is why have five categories? Why not just say anytime the target's a U.S. person, right? Like, you know, if you're worried about, if, if you're, no, but if you're worried about spying on, if, if the whole point is you're, if, if, if you actually are worried about using FISA to spy on Americans and you want to ensure that when it's a U.S. person, all the I's are dotted, all the T's are crossed, then don't have these random subjective categories. Have it be anytime the target's a U.S. person. And I went back and looked, Bobby, if you look at the ODNI 2020, you know, statistical transparency report, um, the ODNI reported that for calendar year 2019, something like 17% of FISA applications involved U.S. person targets for a grand total of about 160. Um, that doesn't strike me as a crushingly overwhelming burden of cases in which you could have a, an amicus participate. So, you know, if there are, there are five now, if you bump up the pool to 10, they each have like about a dozen to 16 cases a year. I mean, I don't, I don't think that's crazy. It's it's not crazy from a, just a sheer like could you staff that with enough amica? Well, but that was but that was but that was one of Bates's objections back in 2013. 14. I'm, look, I, I, it, could it be done? Sure, because you know money can solve problems. Uh, but I want to come back to my point of just the sheer novelty of this. There's there's no other country in the world that has subjected their foreign intelligence collection apparatus to that sort of procedure. I, we're not every other country in the world, and I think we should be held to a higher standard because we should be at least, and I think we usually are a freer society. So that's good. I, I, I don't think there's a problem with that. Um, but there's no question this is an extraordinary Rubicon to cross um, and to cross it, not just sort of for cases of special sensitivity, such as they're trying to map out here, but to go further and just have it be the default. I mean, and this leads, by the way, naturally to a discussion of Rand Paul's amendment, which is up tomorrow, which is kind of a hilarious, it's not just crossing the Rubicon. Just, just be done. I don't even know what it is. It's, blowing, it's not blowing up the bridge because I built my metaphor in a different direction. No, 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 no. It's, it's crossing the Rubicon and then dropping a nuke behind you. Yeah, so that no one can ever go back. Let, let's just be clear. Rand Paul's amendment is um, FISA, all the different FISA authorities simply just could not be used for U.S. person targets. Period. Just like, it's like a... It's a Foreign Intelligence Service Dream Act. It's so, the Rand Paul so, Dream Act for the Russians. Can we just, can we say, listen, the, the amendment's not going to pass. I don't even think it's He may even not even offer it. Like, I mean, there's, yeah. there's talk that he's going to withdraw it. I, the, the, the Lee Leahy Amendment was always the best chance to pass, and then Danes widened behind it. And if Danes widened didn't get enough votes, Paul's not getting enough votes. No, clearly, but, it's clearly not going to. But he deserves a little bit of a kick uh, for, for suggesting something that is so transparently um he won't he won't offer because that because the, the he'd lose like 86 to 7 but um i'd like to know who the seven are well i, I could i have some ideas so, so so two last points before we before we stop talking yeah, about this yeah, you got to talk westworld here so um big point number one is um 
of the nine, you know, um, I think what there was, it was 19 senators who voted against Lee Leahy, um, only two Democrats. So there are 17 Republicans, right, who voted against this amendment, um, including Graham and a bunch of others. Um, and it would be nice to actually hear from them why all of a sudden they're not worried about procedural reforms to FISA or what their objections were. Um, two, you know, Bobby, the politics in the House strike me as super complicated here. Um, right. Yeah, I, I mean, like, I don't, what do you think is going to happen? So I think the, the, here's the, the first problem is my sense was that the house didn't want this bill back in any form. Right. right. And, no, it was a little, little painful for some of the members to support it the first time as a clean reauth. And now it's back in a more, but here's uh, the problem. The, the problem is not. I, so here's the thing. I don't think, I don't doubt that there are 218 votes in support of this amendment. I think between the democratic caucus and you know, the deep state crazy Republicans, I think that's a no brainer. The problem is other amendments, right? That like, you know, now that now you go back the, to the, so the ball's going to hit back into the Senate's court. Right. Now that you go back to the House, right, they're not going to stop with the Lee Leahy amendment. There's going to be pressure to add, you know, amendments and, and then it becomes amendment palooza. And then it goes back to the Senate as a different bill. And then, you know, the those three and a half provisions of FISA that expired in March never get reauthorized. Right, which is to me, you know, I at, like you know, I'm a fan of sunsets in general, but this one's really giving me ca- give me cause for doubt about the wisdom of that. Starting to uh, activate my inner Stuart Baker. As I prefer I to, but listen, I, I, it's it's Churchill and democracy. Okay, it's the worst form of government, <laughs> except for all the others. Right, right. This won't entirely put me off of it, but I feel duty bound to acknowledge in this case. Damn, it it is costly. I think I suspect, and I will wait for the PCLOB. I hope one day to tell us. I think this one's probably causing real problems. Democracy is costly, Bobby. True it is, but does that mean that any cost, therefore, without limit, is, is necessary? <laughs> I, would, wow. I, would be, I wouldn't worry so much if this didn't all seem so silly. All right. Um, I think we said already that there was a War Powers Resolution-related bill that got vetoed. We've been on so long now. Just really quickly, the Senate, the Senate failed to override the veto, 49 to 44 to sustain. So, you know, that, 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 there, there goes that one. Yeah, so maybe in a few years, maybe 10 years from now. We'll it's just, some the only thing that's newsworthy here is how not newsworthy, like, it, things are so messed up that, like, well, you know. Like, how many people could, could tell you in which countries the United States currently claims uh, to have a zone of active hostilities uh, in relation to the AMF? <sighs> Can anyone name the groups that are the associated forces in the AMF? Does anyone even report on, very few, um, the occasional airstrikes that still occur variously around the world? No one seems to care anymore. And I think it's really striking, but it's no surprise in a world of uh, first, COVID-19, second, Donald Trump, third, technology, fourth, China, and so on and so on. The, this is a marker of how old we've gotten, my friend. Um, the war on terrorism, it continues on, but no one's watching the show anymore. I like our Until- podcast. Until something happens and yes. suddenly it roars back into the headline, which yep. that's uh, speaking of things that happened and that we West don't watch Day anymore. Season three happened. And in a second, we're going to talk about this in a way that those who haven't watched it, but want to don't want to listen to. So if you're going to sign off now, thanks for listening. And there we go, Steve. Uh, I was really disappointed in the finale. Uh, what did you think? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it just felt like they were like, yeah, um, wrap up this loose end, give this person that motivation. This isn't really the character before, but that's who they are now. And I just felt like I was watching some kind of cheap, well-produced, nice production values, and I'll watch it. 
sci-fi spectacle. It certainly didn't feel like the brilliance of clever Westworld. I think I said this about episode nine. So I had the distinct sense that the arc of the season changed, right? Somewhere around episode six or seven. And I wonder if that's about when they started realizing that they were going to need to have a season four, right? Like that, that there was a good bet they were going to get re-upped for season four because- they changed things that maybe would have been written in a more compelling way, more right. enriching way because right. they needed to actually keep it alive. Oh, and I predicted in episode 10, Dolores does in fact say she found Caleb. Yep. Which yeah. I'm like, no, that, that's not how it was presented to us. It was a completely preposterous it's, fortuity. It's, it's got all the hallmarks of a mid-season change that, in a way, you know, you make an investment of your real time, and there's a certain amount of trust that you're putting in the hands of the showrunners to, to not jerk you around with the plot in a certain way. And I felt, I felt it there, that they're like, oh, actually, no, it turns out that he's John Connor, and she knew it from the moment that he stepped in and stopped his bastard platoon mates from attacking the host in the park once really and did she somehow magically figure him in into a it position just, walk I, it down just, that it alleyway? Just, it just really sort of it just yeah i guess it you know um good old jesse pinkman i, I forget the actor's name but i like i like him as an actor but there's only so many times i can watch him sort of turn his head to the side and look in a disconcerting way wondering wait what's happening here wait what's happening here it, it just kept happening and I kept waiting to see like, okay, so where did this guy's great leadership qualities? Cause we sure haven't seen any sign of it yet. Um, he's no, he's no John Connor. No, he's no John Connor. Um, then again, most of the John Connors they cast weren't John Connors except for the kid. The kid, um, the kid was the best John Connor. Absolutely. Um, the, uh, the Deus Ex Machina aspects of like, whenever you need it, you, she has a range for some hired guns, some hired muscle to show up. Never really do much except for when they have Marshawn Lynch, Marshawn Lynch actually or catch a ball, catch a pass. It's like, hey, you know he was in the NFL, right? Did you see him jump up and catch that? Because he was in the NFL. Come on, Marshawn deserves better than that. Um, so Dolores turns out to be the hero. Her arc, she gets more and more kindly and humane as the, as the thing goes. This sure looks a hell of a lot different from the end of season two's Dolores. Um, she's unrecognizable by the end. Um, Ninja... Um, Ninja Maeve is gets progressively less interesting as she becomes more of an yeah. action hero with she's no. Action, she's like a she's like a, she's like a, a superhero as opposed to like an interesting, you know, conflicted robot. Right now, she used to have character, and then they take that out. Um, uh, the Rock. I mean, even him. They're like, oh, it turns out he's he's just been responding to his earpiece the whole time. Right. Come on. Um, that I, was was really, under, I, I was underwhelmed, which is not to say that I won't watch season four, but, um, but I did like having, okay. So poor Stubbs, you know, I guess rots away in the bathtub. Seriously. Um, Bernard should have just shot him. Uh, I didn't, I didn't love, but I guess I understand the idea that the hosts, when they map onto people, we're supposed to believe they kind of hybridize into this sort of in-between space. Charlotte did it to some extent. Charloris. Charlotte. Well, she's, she's, She's all something else of her own now, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, not so interesting, I guess, but I guess and what, and, and, a bad guy. And, and, and now is it clear that, that the man in black is in fact a host? Well, he, the new one is, right. uh, but I don't think, I think we're supposed to believe that all along he was in fact William. Till when? Until he gets his throat cut by host man in black in the, in the concluding credits. Mm. Like that, that he was not a he was not just a host because but so why was he already listed as deceased in the computer? 
Oh, who knows? I don't know about that, but I feel like if they wanted to, if they wanted to reveal that he was one host being slain by an identical host at the end, they wouldn't have given him such a human ending. And he was, yeah. he was treated as if he was a human being. Sure. Throat cut, drops to the floor. No, like, you know, reaching in there to get the ball and crushing it or anything. Um, Karen and I, though, watched a really, really cute new show on Netflix that you guys might like. What's that? Never Have I Ever. Never Have I Ever. All right. It's, um, it's, a, it's, a teen rom- it's, it's, a, it's a teen comedy about um, uh, a, um, an Indian-American girl in Los Angeles who's coming to terms with some traumatic stuff in her life. And it's, okay. it's really cute. It's really funny. It's well done. Is it kind of um, like on the super bad spectrum of going out and like, you know, you, you laugh, laugh, laugh until you remember you have a teenager and you're like, wait, why am I laughing? This is no, crazy. to the contrary. I actually think it's, I actually think it's, it's deep and interesting. I, I don't know that it's appropriate for Riley, but like, I think you and Heather yeah. will like it. There's plenty of, yeah. Well, uh, it, teenagers and parents are best off when they watch Netflix separately. Um, I watched the first episode of Uploaded on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that? Are you no. aware of it? No. Uh, so the premise is that, uh, it's a little bit into the future and they have the ability to basically, it's sort of a Neil Stevenson. We can map your brain and we can, we can, we can, it's like we can take you into the crucible. We can put you into a, a dream world. So when you die, if you've paid your upkeep, you'll be uploaded in your, your sort of best mental self image and live in this nice little digital resort land. And it, they just do a lot of really fun things with near future tech, not just in the uh, resort land of the digital yeah. world, but the, the dead are going into, but also in just what the physical world around it is. Cool. So this guy, that's me my next show. Well, so this guy didn't have the money really. He would never have been able to pay for the fancy place he gets uploaded yeah, yeah. to. Yeah, yeah. But his his very rich and not he's not that in love with her girlfriend. Yeah. Uh, she she funds it, but he's kind of beholden to her now because like he wants to he wants to get something out of the mini fridge. There's an in app purchase. He can't do it unless she authorizes it back in the living world. It's it's good fun. That's good. Um, you know, uh, so on 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 uh, Star Wars Day, they dropped uh, Episode Nine on Disney Plus. We watched it. So course. so I watched it again, and I have to say, it did not hold up well. Um, so we watched. Uh, we did a three night. Uh, build up seven, eight, and nine uh-huh. uh, to do it right. Get all the kids up to speed. Build up and, or build down, depending upon perspective. Yeah, I think that. Uh, I, 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 the story is weak. Yeah, the story is weak. The first order is completely weak, and it seems a lot like just like Westworld. It seems like as they went, they're like, "Okay, wait, no, maybe this should be the plot. Maybe, maybe we should have a maybe we should have a fleet of a thousand star, fully armed and fully staffed and fully crewed star destroyers. Hide them under the ice like it's a cooler. They'll bust out of there like bottles of beer at a party. And they'll all rise up at once, but then they'll have to hang there for a while. For a while, um, we'll staff them with who? I don't know. We'll fuel them with what? I don't know. I mean, it was it was really sloppy in that respect. It's just, um, it's just like you know, it, the first time you see it in the theater, you're wowed by the visuals, and you're you know you're along for the ride. And then the second time or the third time you watch it, you're like, wait a second, none of this makes any freaking sense. No, and, and you know, Snoke, Snoke yeah. gets less. Snoke couldn't have less backstory. Right. He's like Count Count Dooku has a has a Tolstoy no- novel behind him compared to Snoke. Um, Palpatine's back and then like the way in episode nine they just are like and the, the opening credits are like oh and there's a transmission people have heard Palpatine's voice people are freaking out it's crazy meanwhile the rebels have kind of found some friends I'm not sure how they they've got some friends now and you know everything felt cheap all that said it just about makes up for it I think the action sequences with with Ray and Kylo or Ben um Adam Driver's performance I think 
is just, you know, you can't tear yourself away. He steals every moment of every scene he's in. Um, drives me nuts that they have this sand pit scene where, uh, you know, Finn says, oh, something I'm going to tell you. We, we, we talked about this when we saw it in the theater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it never tells him. Yep. That's just sloppy. Is yeah. it supposed to be funny? That's insulting. So I'm with you. Um, I don't need to see it again, but I, I very much enjoyed both in eight and in nine, the Ray and Kylo combined yeah. fight scenes. Yeah. Yeah. The one in eight in the red uh, uh, throne room. I mean, their, their dynamic is the only thing I think is actually interesting about the whole, yeah. you know, the whole reboot. Yeah. Um, the, the, the Luke's, Luke's uh, sort of myth-making moment where he projects into the field. No, but all the, all the listen, I've, 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 I've come about this before. Like all of the powers that the dead Jedi now have that apparently oh, yeah, they didn't yeah. no, have they're, before. They're, I mean, they really yeah. stepped it up. Yeah. Maybe they uploaded. <laughs> all right. On that note, I'm cutting you off. And I have, I have to go, I have to go record my, my, my muted video of clapping for graduation and my, okay. my Good inspirational message to our graduates. Well, I recorded all their names, Ooh. even the standard, uh, you know, listeners, I probably have mentioned this before, but at graduation, I read all our JD graduates' names. Lucy Wood reads the LLMs, which is the shorter and much harder uh, task, as you might imagine. B- B- Bobby speaks the most and the longest at the law school graduation. It's, uh, it was like two hours or something. I just, I just recorded them really quickly, and they're going to intersperse it. I actually think virtual graduation, though it's going to be such a bummer not to be there, it's going to open up the doors to some really cool ways of highlighting uh, each individual student in a certain way that you can't do when they just walk across the stage. So go do your work. I'm going do first, it. first kill all the lawyers. That's my, that's my, my, my animating premise for my, my, my uplifting three minute remarks is, is why Shakespeare had to, why, why Bill the Butcher has to say that in Henry the sixth part two. Damn that Bill the Butcher. You know, Bill the Butcher, good guy. All right. Uh, he's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL podcast. Oh, uh, give us a rating. I, I've noticed other podcasts are really good about saying that. Hey, oh. get on iTunes and other platforms of choice and give us some don't stars. Don't just give us a rating. Give us a five. Yeah, give us a, should we Should we come around and say that? Is that like, you know, very, very, uh, very embarrassed. By I'm still thing. bitter about the person who wrote a, like a glowing evaluation for me in bed courts last year and gave me all ones. So, you know, I want to I be clear. <laughs> to, I want to avoid that in the future. That's hilarious. Oh, man. All right. If you give us an entertaining rating, um, we will uh, read it on air, unless you shaft us, in which case we probably will skip yours. Isn't it? No. I mean, isn't this the whole thing about reading mean tweets? Uh, No. Yeah. I don't know if I want to do that, really. I I, I think we, I think we're, this might, we might be in record setting territory for the length of this podcast. So why don't we just stop there and say, we'll be back next week. Stay safe out there. Wash your hands, wear a mask. um, And, you know, I don't know. Hug your, hug your family. But only your family. But only your family. Adios.